get there, though. I promise. This is a Ten Commandments study. So, hopefully by the end of the sermon you'll realize why I'm in Matthew 22. So, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Uh, we'll begin by reading these and then we'll pray. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40 starts with this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And God, we come this morning right now. God, I pray, knowing that we need your word. That in this world, there's many things that we think that we need. But God, right now, we need to hear from you. We need to sit underneath your word and say, God, this is what is true. This is what is right. This is what is good. And so, God, soften our hearts so that we would be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you again for Christ and what he has done. Amen. Does anybody remember the or know the preamble off the top of their head? Some may. Uh, some of you, I can already see that you're already doing your head, and I, I think I can guess what you're doing. You're singing the, the schoolhouse rock version of the preamble. We the people in order. Nobody knows that? So maybe it was just me. <laughs> I better not. <laughs> Is that uh, the preamble, typically how we learned it was the schoolhouse rock version. The song gets stuck in your head. You can go and Google and YouTube it later. And so uh, that's how we all learn the preamble. And the preamble is really important because the preamble sets out the intent and the purposes uh, of the Constitution and what it's, uh, what it's trying to accomplish uh, in our society. That's what the preamble is doing. So it's just a brief entryway into what, what is the purpose of the Constitution and what is its goal in mind. And so when we get into Matthew 22, I want us to carry that kind of same mindset into our text today is that Jesus is going to be presented with a question about the commandments and about the law, and Jesus' answer is going to be framing it for us, going to be giving us a broad overview of what is, what is the law, what are the commandments, what are they about? So his answer is frameworking for us how to view the Ten Commandments, which is why we're, why we're in this today, is that before we get into the Ten Commandments, we'll be going after this week, uh, week by week, looking at specific commandments, and this week is really pivotal because Jesus right here in these, these few verses is giving us a framework to look and think about what do the commandments mean for us today? What are they all about? What is their essence? So let's consider this question. And the first one is this. Asking the right questions in the wrong ways. Is that Jesus receives a question from the lawyer, and he recognizes its value despite the hostile approach that, that it has. Anybody ever watch, back in the day, this show was on a long time ago, but um, Stump the Schwab, anybody? 
Anybody ever watched something Schwab? It was on ESPN, and Howie Schwab was a, uh, was a sports analyst uh, statistician, uh, brainiac in sports trivia. And so the, the goal of the show was these contestants would come on the show, and they would try and stump Howie Schwab. They, they would compete against him to see if they could, you know, basically were superior to him in sports trivia. Really cool show. But the goal of it was to stump Howie Schwab. That was it. And this is the approach that the Pharisees are taking here in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, is that they're coming to Jesus with a question, not to learn anything from Jesus, but to undermine his authority, to make him look bad, to discredit him, to make him look like just a a fool. That's all that they're doing. They're not here to learn. They're here to undermine his authority. They're here to stump him. But the first verse tells us this. What has Jesus already done? Is he's already silenced the Sadducees already. So the Pharisees have heard this, that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees in their questions. There's questions about the resurrection and things like that. He's left the Sadducees with their mouths open stunned. They can't respond to what he said. They can't debate what he said. And so now we get kind of like a tag team sort of approach in this. So the Sadducees get kicked out. Well, Sadducees tag in the Pharisees. And guess what they do? They send in their biggest and their brightest, right? The lawyer, you know, because the lawyers are the biggest and the brightest of our, our, our day, right, too? Is that the lawyer knows everything. He, 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 he'll, man, he'll stump this Jesus guy when it comes to the law. And so we get this tag team approach. The Sadducees get silenced. The Pharisees send in their biggest and their brightest to stump the Jesus of Nazareth. They send in their heavy hitter. And so you kind of see that the Sadducees have been silent, so the Pharisees, they're gathering together, plotting. The same word is used in Psalm 2-2 when the kings of the nations, they gather and they plot in vain against Yahweh and against His anointed one to overtake Him. They're, the Pharisees are doing this right now. They're getting together to see how can we undermine this Jesus. He started a frenzy and we, we want this to stop right now. We want to be on top of our game. We, we don't want anybody competing with us. So they're gathering together to make Jesus look bad. And we see the intent behind their question. Matthew has Matthew already said that, is that their intent is not to learn anything from Jesus. They're not coming like, oh man, maybe, maybe we can learn something from this Jesus guy. What is the goal of their questioning? What is it? To test, right? Their goal is to test him. Now what's interesting is this. This word to test, uh, every time it's used in Matthew's gospel, the people who are testing Jesus, it's only two groups. One, the Pharisees are only testing Jesus. And two, the devil. It's never good to be in that company, right? When you're testing Jesus. When the only two groups that are testing Jesus are the Pharisees and the devil, right? And so, but that's their approach. That they're come to, not genuinely, but in an insincere manner to to try and undermine Jesus and to show his inadequacies, to show how he is inferior to them. But in their approach and in their questioning, what they'll find out is that they come to make Jesus look stupid and they walk away looking stupid. That they come to make him look inferior and they recognize that they are the ones who are inferior. Because in their question, which is the, which is the great commandment? The, the question itself is trying to trap Jesus. It's trying to trap him because anything that he could answer is going to be wrong, right? It's basically like saying, which one of your kids is your favorite? 
ain't no right, I mean, none of them, I don't like any of them. It's like, there's, there's no right answer to that. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trap. It's a trap. Don't answer. No, no, no. And that, that's, that's what this is when the Pharisees come to Jesus. Which is the great commandment? They're trying to trap him to see if he will contradict himself. But even though they have wrong intent in their question, Jesus still recognizes the value and the importance of the question. It's a good question. Asked in the wrong way, it's still a good question. Which is the great commandment? Which one has the most importance? Which one has the, the greatest priority when it comes to all these, all these commandments? In the, in the law, in the, the first five books of the Bible, there's 613 commands. They're asking, which one of these 613 are, are which one's the most important? Which one should we prioritize over the, all, all the other ones? So it's a good question. And so Jesus doesn't shoo it away. He receives it. He recognizes its value. And so one thing I think we can learn from just these two verses, this interaction here, is that look at Jesus' disposition here. Look at, his, look at his demeanor, his disposition, right? The question doesn't rattle his cage, right? It didn't infuriate him and make him angry and frustrated and, it, and rile him up. He isn't surprised or caught off guard by this. No, it, he, he is actually in, in responding and in his disposition, he is embodying the truth that he is about to tell. So, as we've read, is that he's saying love God and love others, love your neighbor. Is that even in his disposition, when he is attacked with opposition... Jesus is embodying exactly what he is telling the people. He's not riled up. His, his cage isn't rattled. He doesn't get angry. But no, he actually embodies love for God and love for neighbor. Now, before we move on, I just want to ask you a question to think about. What is your disposition when you get the smallest or the tiniest little bit of pushback or feedback or critique or opposition? What is your... What is your disposition and demeanor? Is it defensive or divisive? No, don't come at me like that. No. Does your disposition look like Jesus? Does our demeanor recognize that you know, even when we respond, even when we're, we're, people come at us with opposition or, or hostility, do we, do we look like Jesus even in those moments? Do we demonstrate that we love God and love others even when we're being attacked and accused of something, right? But guess what? Also that too is that just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, just like their questions don't rattle Jesus' cage, our questions don't rattle Jesus' cage either. Some of you have, may have questioned Jesus, may have questioned God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Guess what? The questions don't rattle God's cage. They, they don't rattle Jesus' cage. But what we need to be ready for is this. His answers may rattle our cage. Our questions, they, they may not rattle Jesus' cage. But guess what? Jesus' answers, they may rattle our cage. And guess what? They may upend and make us very uncomfortable in our comfortable, convenient Christian life. So get ready. Because what he's about to say is probably and should rattle are cages because he's about to say something really heavy let's look at this so though their approach is wrong yes the question is valid Jesus has a disposition that embodies his response and so what he says is this the greatest commandment is 
loving God. Loving God. Is that loving God is an all-encompassing reordering of one's life to God. Many people today in our society have, have mantras or encouraging sayings that they say to themselves, right, and get themselves pumped up for the day. You know, may go look in the mirror and say something to yourself to kind of get you ready and set your mind and your frame, frame of mind ready for the day, get you focused. Maybe you have it pasted on your, you know, on your uh, uh, refrigerator or on your mirror or whatever. And so it, typical sayings, you know, what people want to say is, you know, I'm awesome. I can make a difference. Those who anger me control me. You know, you're the best. I don't know what mantras, you know, I don't know what people are saying to themselves these days. But but people have these encouraging sayings that they try and hype themselves up and frame their mindset for the rest of the day, focus their mindset in. I would say, uh, you know, if you have a Christian mantra, it should possibly, you know, well, it shouldn't possibly, it should be from the Bible. Uh, You know, that's a good place to make a mantra from. And so... Uh, but people, even today, we, we have these mantras that kind of are to set our focus and our mindset on that, on things. And when Jesus is asked about the great commandment, Jesus goes directly at the, the I guess you would say, the common Jewish mantra of the day, though that mantra is from the Bible. He goes directly at it. And, and, and he says, this, this is the great commandment, the Shema, loving God. And they can't disagree with it. And so Jesus recognizes the importance of the question, and he goes directly to the answer that they couldn't even, they can't even give a response to because it's true. He goes to Deuteronomy 6, and he references the Shema, something, something they would all have been familiar with. Because if you're a faithful Jew, what you're doing from the time that you're waking up is you're reciting the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is what they're repeating to themselves from the time that they get up in the morning until they go to bed. This is, this is what they're repeating. And so when Jesus goes directly at it, he knows you, you can't put up a fight or response to this. This, this is the great commandment, that you love God with everything. With everything. And so this is to define and shape even our lives that we are to love God. But let's just ask the question, what does it mean to love God? Sounds like a really easy phrase that we're kind of all okay with, like, man, it doesn't really send up any red flags, right? Love God, right? It doesn't, doesn't do anything. We kind of read over it and we minimize it. We've, even today, we've made loving God kind of a commodity. It's it's like run of the mill. Everybody does it. If you ask anybody on the street, do you love God? Yeah, I love God. All right? it, it, it's, it's no big deal anymore. But do we realize what we're saying when we say, we love God? It's saying something much heavier than, oh, I got, I got some feelings and emotions for him. It's asking us to do something and be something. Ask us to do a couple things when we say we love God. Is that, we are prioritizing our life around him. Is that he is now, God, the priority, priority of our life. Nothing comes above him or before him. He is the most important thing about us and who we are. Everything falls underneath him in priority. Nothing is more valuable, nothing is more precious, nothing is more important than him. He is the priority of our life. If you want to 
determine what your priorities are. Try this. In college, I was in a class, and one of the assignments that we had was the teacher said, I want you to document every minute of your day for a week. And so I did it. And if you want to figure out what you love and what you prioritize, document every minute of your week. You will, you will be shocked at the things that you prioritize and you value in this life. Because you look at it and you're like, golly, I'm such a materialistic person. Man, I, this, does not, this does not demonstrate that I love God at all with the things that I did this week, right? And so when we say that we love God, it, it's saying that we prioritize God above all things and that He is the most important thing in our life. And not only that, when we say we love God, we're not only saying we prioritize Him, we're saying our entire lives are reordered and arranged because of Him. We don't look different. Well, we do look different. We definitely do look different. That, that would be bad. We don't look different. We look the same. No, we look completely different because we've rearranged and reordered every part of us to Him. Is that He reshapes and reorders how we think, how we speak. Because when we're saying that we love, when we say we love God, we're saying we care about what He cares about. We are concerned with what He is concerned about. We want to think how He thinks. We want to care about what He says. This is what what we're saying when we say we love God. We prioritize Him and we reorder everything in our lives around God. We are concerned with what he loves and what he doesn't love. And that changes our purpose in this life, is that now we exist to love God. And that that reorders everything. And not only that, is that when we say we love God, we're speaking about the totality. Is that we cannot love God in partiality, partially of us. We'll love God in some of these areas, but not in these. That, 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 that's, that, that's for me to keep, you know, just on the side. no. When, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, he's speaking about the entirety of the whole person. There's not a piece of us that can be off limits when it comes to loving God. Loving God means what you think about says you love God. What you talk about says you love God. What you love and believe says you love God. Your passions and pursuits say you love and care about God. This is it. When we say we love God, we're saying we prioritize Him. He reorders our life, everything that we do. He is the purpose of our life. And now, every inch of us, every piece of us, is directed at loving Him. There is not anything that is off limits. And so, it's a total life overhaul for us. Everything is about loving God. And we, just a little side note is that we cannot love God without loving Jesus, as John 8, 42 says. You can't love the Father without loving the Son. So you can't, you can't love God without loving Jesus Christ. And, and you have to understand that we only love God because He first loved us. So He started this thing off. Is that we love God because He initiated this thing with us in His love. This is what it is. So, in every area of your life, would you say that you are loving God? Whether that be from your work, from your home life, to your thought life, what you watch on TV, what you spend your money on, all these different things, where you go, where you don't go. Does it say 
I prioritize and have reshaped and reordered my life around this God that I say that I love. Love is much, much more deeper than an emotion or a, a feeling, right? Does every area say you love God? And now what's great about this is that Jesus doesn't stop here. So when he's asked this question about what's the great commandment, Jesus doesn't stop here. The guy, the lawyer, asked for one commandment and he's going to get to, he's saying, it's not only that you love God, but what else? That you love your neighbor. This is the second commandment, love your neighbor. This all-encompassing reordering of one's life to love God will inevitably change how we, how we relate to others, that we will love others. There's um. There's been a documentary that was released in 2018 that was documenting the life of the, the, the nicest neighbor in America. You might know who it is? Mr. Rogers, right? Yeah. Who's my neighbor? Or uh, who wants to be my neighbor is his famous line, right? And so uh, despite what you think about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, or it may be, the documentary depicted a man who loved people despite what their political views were what their race was, what their disability was, what their vocation was, whatever external feature or barrier that we've created in this culture. And he invited them into his home, and he said, won't you be my neighbor? There's a lot, lot in that phrase. And so what Fred Rogers was trying to do in his show was teach children to show kindness and love towards people who may look complete, completely different from them. And he did this by calling other people his neighbor. And so I'd recommend the documentary. It was great. And I I don't think Fred Rogers is trying to elaborate an entire systematic theology for children in that show. Don't, Don't get me wrong. But he is teaching the principle and commandment that Jesus is talking about right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he was trying to get across is what does that entail? And this is where the shock value comes in for the Pharisees. Okay, yeah, I know, you're right. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. We get that, and thumbs up to that. But to love somebody else, to love a neighbor as ourselves, well, you've gone too far, Jesus. I'm drawing a line in the sand here. That's way too far. This is shocking. This is shocking for them. But what Jesus has done is he's pulled from Deuteronomy 6 over here, and then he's pulled from Leviticus 19 over here, and he's put these two texts together. He says, you love God and you love others as yourself. This is what he's doing. He's saying that, yeah, the most important thing is to love God, but on the same level of importance is loving others. Loving others. And so, again, what is love? What does loving one's neighbor entail? Is it, is it just the warm fuzzies? Is it just a sentimental feeling? Or even, even maybe what it's not. Well, I don't hate that person, and I don't despise them, and they don't get on my nerves and annoy me. So I guess you could say I love them. Basically what it's not, right? What it's not. So none of these things is actually love. None of these. Love, what what the Bible defines love as is through the story of a God who loves a people despite their continual rebellion against Him. And that He continues to pursue them despite how they treat Him. And that He works for their good. That's the demonstration of love in the Bible. A God who is faithful to a people despite their unfaithfulness to Him. And so, as we consider what love is, we have to think, well, 
Okay, if we're going to take this illustration of how God loves us, then love for us, loving neighbors, is about considering the interest and concerns of another's well-being and seeking their good through thought and committed action. We're, we're actually concerned about somebody else's well-being and good, right? And that we show that through commitment and self-sacrifice. And so a couple of questions to ask in this. Why should we love? Why should we love? Well, the reason we love is, is that it's connected to the first commandment. Love God. And then he comes on the back end and says, love your neighbor. He's saying, the visible expression by which people can tell that you love God is your love for others. Is the way that you visibly, visibly manifest that you love God is by loving others. These two commandments are inseparable. You cannot say that you love God and not love others. That's, that's the message of 1 John. You cannot say that. It is impossible. You cannot hate your brother and say you love God. And so, loving others demonstrates that you not only love God, but that you've received God's love, that you have been born again. That is the trait. That is why we love others, because we have received the love of God, and it demonstrates that we love God. But who should we love? Well, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Well, like many of us possibly, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they, they tried to find a loophole in that. Okay, neighbor. Well, neighbor, that must mean uh, you know people who are part of my religious community, people who look like me culturally or socially or economically. Those are my neighbors, right? Th- those are the people I should love. So they had a very limited view of what a neighbor is. They tried to really limit it down. It's just this group of people who look like me, think like me, act like me, speak like me. It's just those people I'm going to love. Those are my neighbors, right? Very much like today, it seems like in Jesus' own day, they've created that them versus us mentality culture, right? Oh, them over there? Yeah, yeah, they are bad. Yeah, they're not anything like us. We we don't want anything to do with those kind of people. No, no, them? Yeah, yeah. We use the them and us language way too much. Same thing's going on in Jesus' day. Yeah, them over there, those aren't our neighbors, the, the, these people right here, us, that's, that's our neighbors. Them over there, th- those aren't our neighbors. And Jesus has come to upend that idea, that mentality. Come to overturn it. Because what Jesus says in his life is this, that neighbors inclo- include those who don't look like you, think like you, act like you. That's what he's saying in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that in Luke 10? He's saying, guess who your neighbor is, lawyer? A lawyer was asking him another question. Guess who your neighbor is, lawyer? Your neighbor is that Samaritan. Yeah, that person that you think is really gross and insane and ugly. Yeah, they're your neighbor and you are to love them. And so for us, to love our neighbor means to love people who may not think like us, who may not act like us, who may not speak like us. Those are our neighbors. And not only that, Jesus even pushes the line a little bit further. He says, not only this, to love your neighbor means you may even, you may even, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, you are to love even those who hate you. Your enemies. Matthew 5, 44. Wow. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's not just saying... You don't get to love just those who people who look different from you and like you. You actually are to love those who look different from you and hate you back, who don't reciprocate or give you love in return. 
You're to love even those people. So the criteria by which you love people is not, well, I love people if they love me back. If they, it's easy to like people that like me, right? Who would, who would not like Wes McKay? I mean, right? They're insane. I love those people. The other people, them, no. I don't love those. Jesus is upending that. There's no them versus us. So he's saying for all of us, you love those who don't think like you, act like you, speak like you. And that may be a lot of different things. People of a different race. People of a different political agenda. Hoo-wee. I'm going to get some emails this week on that one. I know that. <laughs> love people from all different backgrounds, histories, colors, nationalities. Everywhere. That is loving your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Guess what? It's every single person. Just like Mr. Rogers. Who's his neighbor? Any person that walked through his door is his neighbor. And that is ours. So how should we love them? Well, Jesus answers that too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Woo, Jesus, man. He's, Because guess what? No one has a problem loving themselves. I love me some me, right? I love me some me. It's hard not, like I said, hard not to love me. I love me some me. Because we all care about our own interests, our own goals, our own passions, our own pursuits. We, we all desire for, for us to be happy, right? That's innate within us. We all want the best for ourselves. Ooh, and guess what Jesus is saying when he says, love your neighbors as yourself. He's saying, this means that you act in such a way that prioritizes the good and well-being of others just as you would for yourself. That's what he's saying. Just as you would seek the good of yourself and the things that you do and the things that you say and the things that you think, you take that same intensity in your love for other people. Loving others as yourself, considering their interest and their concerns and what will be the best for their well-being and their good. That is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? I'll give you an example of this from the law. Deuteronomy 22.8 says this. So, so God is giving a command to Israel when they're about to enter into the, into the land. He says this, Deuteronomy 22.8. If you build a new house, make a railing around your roof, so that you don't bring blood guilt on your house if someone falls from it. Leviticus 19 is driving Deuteronomy 28, 22.8. He's saying, if you build a new house, hey man, consider your neighbors when they go up on your house with you. Like, make a railing so that they don't fall off their house. Because that's loving your neighbor as yourself. You're considering the well-being and interest of someone else. I, I mean, just, I'll give you a common example. Let's say I, let's say I invite the Durans over. You know, they have boys, and I say, hey, come on back. We're playing baseball in the back. And then I, I go to Brett, and I say, hey, man, I threw some rusty nails out there and some broken shattered glass in the backyard, but, hey, the, the boys will have a blast back there. Blast, you know. And Brett was like, hey, Caitlin, let's get back in the van. You know, let's, let's get back in the van. And he would probably say, like, you are not considering the concerns and the well-being and the good of my children or my me and my wife. You are not considering those above your own. And so when Deuteronomy 22 says, build a railing around your house, 
I mean, that, that goes right at us because, you know, when we build a house, do we ever consider the concerns and the well-being and the good of somebody else? You don't go to your architects like, hey, I really want to consider all my friends are going to be coming over to my house when I build this thing. You're like, no, I want this kind of tile. I want this kind of kitchen. I want this many bathrooms. I want this kind of flooring. I want this, kind of, I want this color on all the walls. It's all about what you're concerned about with right when you build a house. And so when God gives this command in Deuteronomy 22, he says, you know, when you build these houses, consider the concerns and the well-being of others in light of this. And so Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, in everything you do toward your neighbor, consider their interests and their concerns and seek their well-being just as you would seek your own well-being. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. Seek their well-being. In everyday living, your love for God and His interest should motivate you to love others and consider their interest. So how are we doing in this area of loving our neighbor? Is our love defined by committed action? Are, are, you, are you loving those who may not love or like you in return? And let me just give us an example. In Romans twelve fifteen, it says, Weep with those who are weeping, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Now I want you to consider, has there ever been a time in your life when you've seen your enemy weeping and you actually take joy in their pain because you think they get what they deserve? Or maybe you're weeping and they're rejoicing. You're upset that they've actually succeeded. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as ourselves is that we weep with those who are hurting and are in pain. And we rejoice when the well-being and good is done in another person's life. We may want to say, I've never thought that. You go down in the deep recesses of your heart. I'm, we know what humans are capable of. So have, have you rejoiced in the weeping of your enemies? And have you weeped in the rejoicing of your enemies? That is not loving our neighbors as ourself. And maybe this morning, you, you should strongly consider maybe a person, maybe in your family or friend group or maybe at work, that you've push off, pushed off from, you've detached from, you, you've cut off all contact with and said, I don't want anything to do with that person. I don't want anything to do with them. I, 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 don't, want, I don't like them, they don't like me, and, and, and that's how it's going to be. And so we're done with each other. I ask, how did Jesus approach such situations when people didn't like him? Especially when uh, us, in Romans 5, 8, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did not receive him in love, but in hate and were his enemies. And yet he still acted in sacrificial, committed love on our behalf for our well-being. So maybe this morning, God is convicting you. There's somebody in your life that you've pushed away from the table from and said, I don't like them, they don't like me, and I'm done with them. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Number three is this. Number four, I'm sorry. The essence of the commandments. This is verse 40. Obedience to all the scriptures is an expression of love for God and love for neighbor. Anybody know what spark notes is? So Sparknotes was big. Yeah. <laughs> Sparknotes was big in college. 
Uh, and if, if you don't know what Spark Notes is, uh, um, aged generation, uh, outside the computer age, is uh, Spark Notes was a place where if you didn't want to read the entire book, you would go there and read a review of the book. Now, I never did something like that. I mean, those kind of people. <laughs> those kind of people, right? Uh, so you go to Spark Notes and you read a summary of the book and you get some of the big highlights and you it, it was trying to condense down the book and trying to make it less confusing for you. And so uh, it, was, it was a good summary and, and, and condensation of the book. It was good. It, it was intended to make uh, schoolwork less confusing. Appreciate them. Uh, and what we're having here in, in, in Matthew twenty two forty is basically a spark note version of all the law and the prophets. We're getting a spark note here. When Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is trying to say, in essence, what is the law about? And this is why we're here. This is the, the only reason this one verse, while we're here this morning, Sunday morning, and while we're not in the Ten Commandments yet, because this one verse is to lead us and give us a framework when we get into the Ten Commandments. Because guess what? He's saying, on these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, this is what the law and the prophets are all about. This is the essence of the law and the prophets, is to love God and love neighbor. And he says, the law and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. They hang on them. He says, everything written depends on these two commandments. And Jesus is not saying that these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, make all the other commandments inferior or negate all the other commandments that are come forth. He's saying this. He's saying, rather, Jesus is saying that all the law and the prophets are an expression of these two ideals, love God and love neighbor. The Ten Commandments are an expression of our love for God and our love for people. Loving God and loving neighbor is the essence of all God's will and commands. So, if you want to think about it in two tablets like this when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, is that the first four commandments are about how we are to love God. How we are to love God. It tells us how we are to relate to God. How we are to think about God. How we are even to speak about God. The first set of four commandments is about how we love God. And it's not the only ways that we love God. But these are just examples and expressions of how we love God. So it's going to talk about idols. It's going to talk about not taking God's name in vain. It's going to talk about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. These are all ways that we live out this love for God. And it's not a comprehensive list. It's just giving us examples of how is love for God expressed? Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't worship other idols. This is what it means to love God. And the second is this. The other six commandments is about loving people. How do we relate to other people? This is how love for people is expressed. So we don't kill others. We don't steal from others. We don't covet the things that others has because we're living by this principle, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we'll talk about is Jesus is going to up the ante. He says, if you think you got off the hook, okay, yeah, great, you didn't, uh, you, you didn't murder your friend. Great, good, you didn't murder somebody else. But guess what, have you ever had anger in your heart towards somebody else? Same. Same in the sense that they are both sins. And so, 
If we think when we get to these commandments that, hey, we're off the hook, I've never committed adultery, I've never stolen anything, never, ooh, I better not say covet, uh, we've never murdered anybody, you say, oh, I'm off the hook, I haven't done any of those. Jesus is going to up the ante on you. He's not going to let any of us out. Because it's not just about not committing adultery and not stealing and not murdering and not coveting, not bearing false witness. It's about our hearts. The laws are meant to get down deep into our hearts. So loving our neighbor is, is much deeper than just not, not doing these things. And Paul summarizes it well in Romans 13. He says this, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, this is our entryway into the Ten Commandments. Is that if, if you've had kind of this mindset that the Ten Commandments are kind of this grocery list that you check off, or maybe this criteria by which gets you into heaven, or, or this is the, the Christian to-do list that everybody has, then, or, or the yardstick by which you measure a person's goodness, put all that to the side. Because what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 22, 34-40 is this. All the law and the prophets, the entire Bible, and especially the Ten Commandments, is this, about loving God and loving others. And that the Ten Commandments are an expression of how we love God and how we love others. So in light of this, in light of what Jesus has said in Matthew 22, 34-40, would you say that your entire life is devoted to loving God? That every area... Every component of you is about loving God to what you think, to what you speak, to what you feel, to how you interact. Is it about loving God? And how are, how are we doing with loving neighbors, loving other people as ourselves? How are we doing when it comes to these two commandments? Because these two commandments are the greatest, what Jesus says, and it's about what the entire Bible is about. And if you need some help in this, if you need some help with the greatest commandments, loving God, loving neighbor, look at Jesus Christ. He is the perfection of loving the Father and submitting to His will and His purposes. And He's the perfect demonstration of loving others as Himself. So much so that He would sacrifice Himself on the cross for people who hated him. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the law, but he is the model of the law for us, of loving God and loving neighbors. He has done this for us and give us, given us the greatest expression of that. And so this morning, you can have the love of God. You can receive God's love this morning. You can understand what true love is and that true love is best demonstrated and truly demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you are not a believer here this morning, I want, I want to compel you. I want to plead with you. Is that there, this world will say, we know what love is. And we want, even this morning, I was, I was looking at some media and, and there's this kind of, this idea of, this idea like, oh, 
just trying to share this love with all other people, trying to be loving to all the people. The world doesn't know love if it doesn't know Jesus. Because it is the greatest demonstration of love. God is love. And so this morning, I want to plead with you is that the world will sell you lots of things that say it is love. But it does not have love because it does not have the one who is embodied love and who is love. And that is Jesus Christ. And this morning, you can have that love through faith and repentance in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. You can know true love and experience it and be able to show it to others this morning. So if you would like to speak with myself or one of our elders after the service, we would love to speak with you more about the love that is shown in Jesus Christ and that he has come to die on our behalf to give us forgiveness, to give us grace, to give us truth, and to show and give his love to us. Let us pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. Lord, let it work even after this in us, God. As we proceed throughout the day and the week, God, in the entirety of our lives, let it be said of us that we love God completely and wholly, and that we love others as Christ has loved us. That this would be the guiding and motivating principle of our lives. We want to love God more, and we want to love others because God has loved us in Jesus. So this morning, let us sing, let us pray, let us read, let us live, let us work, so as to show that we love God. And because we love God, we can love others. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?